Happy Easter Sanctus. We are so glad that you're joining us, whether you're watching online in our fifth site or you're watching at one of our permanent locations or you're watching somewhere in the world, no matter who you are, where you're coming from, welcome to this amazing moment, this Easter celebration where we're literally joining billions of people celebrating the life, death, and of course, physical resurrection of Jesus. One of my favorite cities on earth is New York City. And I love always going to some of the tourist traps. And one of them, of course, is Rockefeller Center. Now, I don't know if you've been there, but at one part of it, there is this huge statue of Atlas, the famed statue. And there it is. And you're watching it right now. You can see it. You can see that the the burden of the world is literally on his shoulders. He doesn't He's not filled with tons of color. He's just sort of one color. And you have this stark image of him bearing all this weight. And behind him, of course, what's, what's there in New York is entertainment and, and status and money and business. It's sort of a great representation of actually the human condition. This incredible weight on our shoulders, even though we've got all this stuff behind us that supposedly brings hope and life. It's so burdensome. Now, if you walk into the middle of Fifth Avenue. I wouldn't recommend you do that. You'd probably get hit by a taxi. But if you did, you'll suddenly realize right across the street is another very famous landmark, St. Patrick's Cathedral. It's gleaming white. It's marked by two crosses. You can see them there. And what a contrast. And when you walk into this building that is dedicated, of course, to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus... You're suddenly overwhelmed with beauty and color and light and it's just stunning. Like, John, why are you talking to me about New York City on Easter Sunday? Here's why. That contrast between Atlas and St. Pat's Cathedral, I think, is one of the best ways to think about why Jesus came, lived, died, and rose again. We as human beings are literally burdened and all of our attempts to find purpose in life, all of our attempts to save ourselves in many forms, we still end up like Atlas. See, you can be the most religious, dedicated person on earth, but you're trying to prove yourself to something out there, to God. You can be spiritual. Maybe you don't believe in any of this. You're agnostic or atheist or you're just a nice person. However you define salvation and purpose or trying to connect to God, All movements end up putting the responsibility and burden on our shoulders. The only movement, the only gospel, the only good news that's the opposite of that is actually what we see across the street. That is the declaration that someone has come to save us. And and what a contrast. You have like no color and burden. And then across the street, all this color and beauty and light. See, this is what begins to get clearer at Easter. Burden to freedom, lack of color to so much color and so much light, self-sufficiency, even religious self-sufficiency, to real salvation. So welcome to Easter. Whether you're a long-term Christian, a brand new Christian, you're seeking, you're skeptical, this is for all of us. Like I've been saying for the last three weeks, because we're doing this series of what, what was Jesus accomplishing when he died on the cross... When Jesus came back to life on Easter Sunday, what we're celebrating today, those that walked with him and talked with him, and oh, by the way, those that hugged him and ate with him and were with him, they were so changed by him and his message. They tried finding words or images or ideas to fully express the power, the beauty, the magnitude, the life change, the hope, the kindness of this salvation that lifts this burden. 
Now they looked in their time, 2,000 years ago, to everyday life to try to find language or images that would sort of encapsulate eternity. And so they chose ideas from the court of law and financing and accounting and the world of business and the world of religious Jewish worship and personal relationships and even the violent, bloody world of war. These six ideas, these six images we've been exploring, we see the full picture, the, the kaleidoscope. They're all the bits of, of glass that make up a beautiful stained glass window that begins to show us why Jesus lived, why he died, and what it matters, why it matters for us, and how he came back to life. Now, we're going to look at two last images on this Easter Sunday morning. We're going to look at the court of law, but actually I'm going to add a seventh one, one we haven't talked about at all in the last few weeks. I'm going to talk about the world of healing. Our journey today begins like this, 740 years before Jesus was born, 740 years before Jesus lived, 740 years before Jesus lay dying, 740 years before Jesus physically came back to life, there was a man living named Isaiah. He, in his time, was one of God's prophets, one of God's mouthpieces on earth, speaking for God in that time. And if you read 66 chapters of his epic book, they're unbelievable. But you'll begin to see some of it was for his day, but much of it was for all generations. Now, near the end of that amazing part of the Bible, you find this long poem. And as you read the poem, suddenly, shockingly, vividly, in graphic detail, 740 years before the event we're celebrating today, Isaiah perfectly describes Jesus, who he would be, what he would do, and what he would even accomplish as he lay dying on the cross and then came back to life. This is how the poem starts. And he refers to the one who's about to come as a servant, a suffering servant. It reads like this in Isaiah 52, 13. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. So God's speaking here and God says, hey, listen, I just want you to stop and I want you to look. I actually want you to look up. I want you to, here's the old word, behold. God says this even to many of you watching and listening today. You need to stop. You need to just decompress. Get off all the nonstop social media interactions. Just Don't avert your eyes. Just stop, listen, and look up. Look to the servant. Because when he comes, what he is going to do is going to be wise and noble and intelligent and clever. It's going to be judicious. It's going to be beautiful. Now those phrases, by the way, you probably don't know this, raised up, lifted up, highly exalted. Those are phrases only used for God in the ultimate sense in the Old Testament. So we begin to see already during this poem that someone who's coming is going to be equal with God himself. I mean, years after Jesus came back from the dead, one of Jesus' earliest followers and leaders, a guy named Paul, who actually, by the way, was involved in jailing and murdering Christians and then met Jesus and became an incredible leader, he, he actually uses the exact same words to talk about Jesus in this book called Philippians. Philippians 2.6, Jesus, who being in very nature God, shared the DNA of God, which means he is God, you can't have the DNA and not be him, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in the appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient, even death on a cross. 
Therefore God exalted Jesus to the highest place and gave him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Oh yes, Jesus will be over all. Oh yes, when he physically came back to life, he, he was highly exalted. He is above all other leaders and rulers, but that's not where the poem goes next. It doesn't let us rush here. This all-powerful, all-wise one who's going to come is marked by things actually we don't really want to look at. We don't want to think about. We don't actually like. Actually, what happens next in the poem, actually in our culture, removes people, cancels people from influence and power. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. So this amazing servant's coming, but then something incredibly wrong is coming. Something is going to go down so amiss, disfigurement, torture in a way that would leave this servant so broken, so battered, he wouldn't even look human anymore. To look at this servant, you would be appalled, you'd gag, you'd throw up. The picture is so gross and overwhelming, you'd instinctually not want to look at him, but look away. Well, yes, <laughs> I mean, this is what we talked about on Good Friday. This is predicted 740 years earlier. This is the pre-cross torture and even the cross event. Jesus was beaten so viciously and brutally, he wouldn't even look very human. Yes, this great servant would suffer terribly. And yet, something beautiful and colorful and light-giving will shock the world and will come out of this brokenness. It says that the servant will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see. And what they have not heard, they will understand. This one person's battering and suffering somehow would affect people from every nation, every ethnic group. His work would touch the whole world, really? That word sprinkled, by the way, is really important. It's actually the very image, first image we talked about in this series. It comes exclusively from Jewish worship, sacrifice. Jewish people would bring a small animal that was unblemished and they kill the animal and the blood would be sprinkled to cover sin. Life covers death. Life covers sin. Isaiah is saying the one would come, he somehow will be a sacrifice, a perfect sacrifice that will touch all nations. He would cover sin everywhere and so powerful he would be that even the most influential would actually be blown away by him, would be stunned by him, would even kneel before him. They'd understand, but not for a while. And then you skip to the next chapter, the poem keeps going, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Well, right here is what would happen and did happen. Who's believed our message? Question mark. Most of Jesus' own people did not believe him. His message did not recognize him, even though he was among them. And not just his own family or ethnic group or friends or his nation. For generations, they've been praying for him to come and he's already come. But actually, much of the world keeps missing him. Many of us, many of you, many of people in the world have heard the good news about Jesus over 2,000 years. Yet most refuse to meet Jesus on his own terms. Most do not believe in him. Most do not embrace him. I mean, this is what was said, of course, later about Jesus by Jesus' best friend in John 1.9. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. And he was in the world. And though the world was made through Jesus, the world did not recognize Jesus. He came to that which were even his own, but his own did not even receive him. 
Well, let me read that verse again, back to Isaiah 53. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The arm of the Lord is a Jewish way of saying God's work, God's power, things only God can do. God has promised to do something that none of us can do. In other words, it takes God, His arm, His work, not our work, to do what is needed. The image shows us what's about to unfold. What is Easter? Well, it's countercultural. It's counterintuitive. It's breaking everything we hold dear. It's undoing, ready, the belief that I can save myself or I can access God. It's undoing self-sufficiency. It's actually saying the weight of the world on your shoulders is too much. Someone else needs to bring salvation. It's not you. There's nothing in us, the Bible says, that would give us the ability to truly, personally know God, not religion, being so dedicated in any form. It's not being really spiritual or attuned or meditative, not being enlightened or fully educated. It's not by good works or being a good citizen. It's not by nature. It's not by education. It's not by technology. We cannot get to God, let alone have a relationship with the perfect creator. And all these things, even the good things sometimes, if we try using them to bring purpose or salvation, we end up being atlas, self-sufficiency, burdened. The Bible says we've all sinned, we've all walked away, we've rebelled in the face of the one that created us, so God has to come for us. The arm of the Lord is needed to act. He came when we could not get to Him. But when He came, oh man, He was not what we expected. He grew up before Him like a tender shoot. Like a root out of the dry ground, he has no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we would even desire him. Okay, man, this this matters so much. Jesus was not going to be good looking. That's the prophecy. Jesus was not powerful in looks. He's not on the front of GQ or Men's Magazine. Not even close. Actually, the description of him is he's an un wanted shoot. He's a sucker from a desert bush that has no value. God has sent an ugly person? Yes. The ugliest, the most unpopular, the weak, not the forceful, not attractive. We're not going to be drawn to him. We're not going to be drawn to his plan. We're not going to be drawn to his message. All the outside outside stuff we look for instinctually, naturally, he won't have. This is literally the opposite of what we value as a culture. We are obsessed about youth and beauty and power and rights and influence and even force. And he's got none of them. I mean, the Christmas story, by the way, makes the connection here to Easter. becomes so clear, right? Jesus is born to nothing parents in a nothing part of the Roman Empire. He's born in a cave where animals eat and defecate, not in some palace covered in beautiful clothing or gold or diamonds, not Rome, not Athens. He's born to nobodies of his day, surrounded by shepherds who, by the way, in that culture are the nobodies of the business world. He grows up under a stepdad who's a Jewish carpenter in a little town. Where are all the great idols of of modern culture or ancient culture? I mean, what do we invest in? What do we trust in? Well, it's our personal assets. We look to our beauty or, or sexuality or what we have or wealth or what we own, money or clothing or what house we want to have or what house we do have, what we've accomplished. Look at my job. Look at my education. Look at my pedigree. Look where I come from. Look at my ethnicity. Jesus is like, I don't have very much at all. No style, no gooch, no drip, no nothing, really. It actually says he's despised. 
He's rejected by humanity, a man of suffering. He's familiar with pain like one from whom people hide their faces. He is despised and we held him in low esteem. Despised in Hebrew means worthless, unworthy of attention. It actually implies something that you use once and throw away. You dismiss it. How can a person like this Help the whole world. Have you seen how messed up the whole world is? I mean, we need a strong person and we need a healthy person and we need a beautiful person and a powerful person. One person thought about it like this. He's not one of the winners. He's actually going to be one of the losers. And how can a loser help other losers? I mean, he's a man of pain, right? A man of sickness. What can he do for the rest of us? Most of us, he says, you know, find illness and others sort of embarrassing. We feel guilty sometimes for being well when someone else is suffering. We feel guilty for being glad when we are well and they're not. We feel we ought to do something to alleviate pain a lot of the times, but we're frustrated because much of the time we can't actually do anything to help the person. As a result, especially in Western culture, we often approach the issue of illness by one thing, avoiding it and avoiding them. We hide our faces, not only just from pain, but the people in pain. We put them in homes and in hospitals, and we do not look at them. Even more, you might not know this, but a lot of people in Jewish religious thinking and actually in Middle Eastern thinking said that if you were sick or suffering, you were getting something you deserved. You you were getting something because either you had sinned or your parents had sinned, and this was the evidence of God's wrath on you. So this person who's coming coming is a suffering servant and he and yet there's this sense he's innocent and he's still going to be struck down and stricken for us verse 4 surely he took our pain and he bore our suffering yet we considered him punished by god stricken by him and afflicted so there's this weird thing suddenly whoever's coming is going to take my pain and my suffering sort of he to we he to we again this is this human condition outline I mean we all experience pain emotional physical uh, uh, mental pain uh, there's disease there's aging we're all marked by suffering and yet it says that he has come to take our pain disease sickness suffering and he takes them on himself and then it says that God we think that God is punishing him for my stuff and the results of sin in, in the generalized sense, and so he's suffering in my place. He's suffering not only with us, but he's suffering for us. Oh, let me say that again. He's not just suffering along with us, he's suffering for us. Now, so far, we're just talking about the results of brokenness, pain, disease, sickness, in the massive sense, but then he gets to the point of why the world is unfair and why our country and world and family and personal life is never truly okay. Because not only does he bear our suffering or disease, it says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He's crushed for our iniquities. That's the word sin. The punishment that, uh, that bought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Pierced, by the way, is one of the strongest words for a violent death. Crushed means to be broken into pieces or pulverized. Now, here's what's wild if you're skeptical and watching this today or listening. 740 years earlier, God says in this moment that the one that would come would have to be pierced for sin. And when Jesus on Good Friday was put on a cross, he was pierced through his wrists and his feet. This was predicted. The Bible actually 
is, is, is truth. Now, why was Jesus put on that cross? To deal with our sin. I mean, this is how Paul would say it later in Ephesians 2.1. As for you, before you knew Jesus, you as humans were dead in your transgressions and sins. See, basically, this is what this says. Every single human being is marked by trespass, iniquity, and sin. What's sin? Sin is what God says is wrong. It means to miss the mark or slip or fall away, not being able to get up, falling aside in thought, word, and deed, regularly, deliberately, and unintentionally. We always violate God's will and God's law. God defines sin, by the way, not my emotions, not my experience, not my pain, not my history. God does. We trespass. We go to places God says you can't go to. We have a debt that we cannot repay. We have iniquity. One person just simply said, sin is the act of choosing our own way and leaving God out of the picture. Isaiah and Paul say the trouble with human beings is we're not just out of harmony. We're not just having a bad spiritual day. It's not like we have a spiritual cold or we're in even the spiritual hospital for the rest of our lives. No, no, it's much worse. We're spiritually dead. We're in the morgue. The funeral home is the true condition of our spiritual life. These are not metaphor alone. We have nothing in us that allows us to connect, to save, to truly find God, know Him, or find genuine full purpose. And yet the servant, somehow the servant, who by the way is innocent, he's going to show up and take the bullet for us. This person would assume the dynamic role of not only dealing with our sins, but even the result of corporate sin. And then we come to this incredible medical moment. It says again, he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us, the punishment that brought us peace is on him, and by his wounds we are healed. I shared this with our church. In the last two years, I had a really horrific fall. It had just rained. I walked outside of our old house. I slipped, don't even remember how. I went up in the air and landed on four steps right across my back. I was rolling around in pain. I finally got to the hospital. They weren't sure if my lungs had collapsed. They weren't sure if I had broken ribs. They actually weren't sure if my back was fractured or not. Amazingly, it was only terribly bruised. But I remember after sitting in the uh, emergency room for like four or five hours and finally getting in, everything was fine. I mean, it was in pain, but it was okay. And then my adrenaline just stopped. And I remember that I was in between sitting and standing and I could not breathe. And everything in me was, it was just fire, full pain. And I remember screaming out. I could not stop myself from not screaming. And the nurse realized my adrenaline had run out. And I was like, I can't breathe. I can't move. Every time I moved my body in any position, there was no rest. I was in a terrible position. She ran over and I remember she just gave me, I have no clue what she gave me. I'm sure it was great. And within like a minute, my whole body calmed right down. And the pain leveled right off and actually disappeared. Do you notice what happens? It took someone else outside of me to walk into my situation and give me something that was not even in my body to actually deal with my pain. That's Easter. By his wounds we are healed. Our sin, eventually fully, our sickness and brokenness, both the floor and the building of our problem, he tears it down. He takes out the evil root and he deals with it. Even before Jesus' death, we begin to see the results of this. This is recorded in Matthew 8. When evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to Jesus. He drove out spirits with a word. He started healing the sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities. He bore our diseases. 
The poem keeps going. It's sort of picking up speed and power. Then he says, verse 6, We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on this servant the iniquity of all of us. Wow. Sheep. What a great, great image of human beings. I love when one person said, Sheep are notoriously single-minded, and they're totally unaware of their circumstances. Their mind is on the next clump of grass and not much else. Furthermore, when they're frightened, they just tend to bolt without even knowing where they're going. If you've been on TikTok lately, you've seen some amazing uh, TikToks of sheep running and then getting saved and running back to the same place. As a result, the person writes, these two tendencies, these two tendencies lead sheep to get lost all the time. Like them, we as humans are not aware of the consequences of our choices. We're helpless especially eternally. And so like sheep, we've lost our way. Like sheep, we are completely unaware of what's going on. And somehow the servant that's coming, he's going to take all of our lostness and all of our sin and and God's going to place it on him. The consequences fall not on us, but on the one who's perfect. I love what Paul said years later after Jesus rose from the dead when he said in 2 Corinthians 5.19, God was reconciling the world to himself in Jesus. Not counting people's sin against them. Oh, thank God. God made him who had no sin, there it is, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Well, the poem keeps going and it literally describes Good Friday and Holy Saturday, those days of darkness and doubt. He was oppressed and afflicted. He didn't open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter as a sheep before its shears are silent, so he doesn't open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he's taken away. Yet, who of his generation protested? He was cut off from the land of the living for, his trans- for the transgression of, eh, of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor any deceit was found in his mouth. Do you see this? No violence, no deceit, no sin, perfect, yet he dies, and he dies, and no one even stands up for him. Well, if you read the gospel accounts, all his friends ran away. He's innocent. He doesn't talk back when he's falsely accused. And oh, by the way, he ends up actually a tomb with the rich. I mean, this is exactly what happened. Pilate literally says... I have found no grounds for the death penalty for this guy. And they say, crucify him. Luke tells us after Jesus dies, a guy named Joseph of Arimathea, a very, very, very wealthy man, takes Jesus' body and places it in his unused tomb, which was a graveyard, graveyard exclusively given to his family, to the wealthy. It all happens. It's all predicted 740 years earlier, and it takes place. Then what comes next? It was the Lord's will. Listen, listen to this, please, on Easter. It was God's will to crush the servant and to cause the servant to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days and the will of the Lord will prosper his hand. It was God's will. Let that sink in. God gave Jesus up and over. Before the beginning of time, God within himself decided to give himself for our sake. Salvation is free, but cost heaven everything. Everything we talk about on Good Friday, all the wickedness was against Jesus, was God's very plan to bring healing to the world. Now, let me just again say this. Is this some weird form of cosmic child abuse? No. Jesus is equal to the Father. Jesus wanted to come. Jesus wanted to take our place because he loves us so much. God so loved the world. God so loved the world. 
It says in verse 11, after he has suffered, he'll see the light of life. Oh, so he's going to die, but then he's going to come back to life. There it is. And he will be satisfied. And by his knowledge, by his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Oh, by the way, this brings us to image two. We're now in the courtroom, the world of lawyers and judges. The word justified means that you are in a courtroom and you're made in good standing. You're made righteous. Or here's the word, you get acquitted. Here's the image. You're guilty, and I'm guilty, and we have nothing left to say. There's nothing. You can't talk back to the judge because he's right. And then someone stands up and says, I'm going to go to jail for them. What? And, and amazingly, not only do you get to leave the courtroom and we get to leave the courtroom, even though we deserve the jail time, you're not acquitted for a period of time. It's forever. The word justified means like it's done. And this is done freely by his grace. We're declared innocent. Jesus's life is transferred onto us. And actually, this brings us to another image we talked about is the world of accounting. So it's like this. Imagine you had a mortgage of 85 or $90 million. Some of you are like, the house market, that's what I have. I know. 85 or $90 million. You can't pay this off in a lifetime. The interest every single day is making it worse and worse. Your kids, if you have them, couldn't pay that off. Your grandkids, your great-grandkids. This is an impossible situation. You are never going to pay this mortgage off. Jesus walks into the bank and says, here's the $90 million plus I'll pay the penalty to break the mortgage. That's what Easter's about. This is why Paul said later in Romans 3.23, for all human beings have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by His grace through redemption that comes by Jesus Christ. Or another way, Ephesians 2.8, it is by grace you get saved. Through faith, informed trust in Jesus. It's not from yourself. Oh, there's Atlas again. It's not from yourself. It's a gift of God across the street. It's not by works, not on your back. No one gets to boast. Let me read this again, back verse 11. After He suffered, He will see the light of life. He comes back from the dead, physically, not just spiritually. He comes alive. He's raised from the dead. Yes, the one that suffers in our place and the one that literally dies and the one that is tortured to such a place where he doesn't look human anymore, the one who God lays all of the lostness and all of the sickness and all the death and sin of the world on this one person, he comes back from the dead and he breaks the power of all of that and he justifies many. He heals the human predicament. Peter put it like this in 1 Peter 2.24, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep that went astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. To you, again, that are joining us that, again, You might have Christian memory or history. You might call yourself a Christian, but you don't really walk personally with Jesus. Or again, you're from another faith or you're spiritual or you don't believe anything. By his wounds, we get healed as humans. If you embrace the true Jesus, all the metaphors and all the statements about Jesus become reality in your life. In the law court of God, where we're all guilty, you get justified. Through Jesus. In the world of finance and accounting, you're moved from red to black, but he pays off the mortgage. In the world of economics, we get bought back. The image we talked about a few weeks ago, when you see the word redeemed, it comes from slave markets. Jesus walks into the slave market. You can get out, pays the ransom, and gets you out of there. 
When you face God, you're covered at the altar. Jesus is the great high priest. He's the mercy seat. He's our sacrifice. He's our new curtain. He even becomes our scapegoat. Jesus reconciles us. He restores the relationship that wasn't just damaged, but was broken beyond repair. He's stronger than the best therapist or clinician because he heals us at the very heart of our, our being and restores us to God and others. And, and like we said, he, he heals us. When, when you trust in Jesus, not only do you get purpose in this life, here's the amazing thing, that just like Jesus died and physically rose back from the dead, if you trust in Jesus, you will rise from the dead. And there is a coming day where there will be none of this left. He pardons us. He liberates us. He fills in the gap for us. He steps in for us. He stands for us. He pays the ransom for us. Why the cross? Because God is love. If you say yes to Jesus, Jesus will give you relationship and forgiveness and purpose. And like I just said, when you face death, as Jesus was physically raised to life, you will be one day physically raised to life. And death and pain and sin and trespass and suffering will pass away and will never come back again. By His wounds, we get healed. By His wounds, we come alive. Back to that New York street. Almost all human beings on earth are self-sufficient. Some of the most self-sufficient people on earth are the most religious people on earth. Other people are secular or spiritual. But the Christian message is we all need a savior. We need someone from the outside to walk inside to change us. He's the one who brings the color. He's the one who brings the light. He's the one who removes the world off our shoulders. How do you respond? It's like you're literally metaphorically standing in Fifth Avenue looking in two directions. You're looking at the atlas and then you're looking back at the cross. Don't get distracted. Look up. Listen to these words. The most famous words in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in Jesus will not die but will have or be given eternal God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Jesus. Whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned, Uh, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they've not believed in the name of God's one and only son. If you on this Easter have never truly embraced the true Jesus who really lived and really died and really rose again and did all this work for you, This is the day. This is the time to cross the street, to move from Atlas to the cathedral, from the monolithic, ugh, to all the color, from all the stuff of the world of entertainment and self-sufficiency and fame to humility. If you've never done it, this is literally God's invitation to you. This is what you pray. You can pray it out loud or just within yourself. You say, dear Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner and I ask for you, Jesus, to forgive me. I believe you died for my sins and I really believe you physically rose from the dead and I'm turning from running my own life and I'm asking you to run it. I'm asking you to be the Lord of my life. I invite you to come into my heart and in my life. I give up all my attempts of self-sufficiency and saving. I ask you to be my savior, my leader, my Lord. Give me eternal life. Forgive me for my sin. Let me have purpose now in eternal life to come. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I know many, many, many of us 
gathering today are Christians. Some of us met Jesus when we were three or five or ten. Others of us met him uh, when we were teenagers or later in life. Some of us have been Christians for decades. Others of us Christians only for days or months. On this Easter Sunday, I want to remind you that everything I've just preached is already yours. It is already true. Jesus is risen from the dead. By his stripes, you are healed and will be healed. You are and always will be justified and acquitted. On this Easter Sunday, I just simply encourage you to walk out of this day with hope and joy, knowing that Jesus is alive, knowing you have a hope that most do not have. Do not walk across the street back to that other thing. Have hope. And let me just pray uh, for us now. Lord, thank you for sending Jesus, the suffering servant. Thank you he undoes all the power of the world to show us where real power is, meekness and humility. For those among us who have not still said yes to Jesus, who are struggling, who are wandering, who are wondering, who are skeptical, Jesus, you show yourself to them, I pray. To those who just accepted you, guard their faith, help them to grow. For those who used to love you, Jesus, so much and actually have been blinded or hurt or confused, I pray in this moment you begin to draw them back to life and light and hope. And for all of us who are followers of Jesus, we just, we're thankful for you, Jesus. We love you so much for who you are and what you've done and what you keep doing. And as we've been praying through this series, would you just give us the joy of our salvation back, the joy of the resurrection back, the joy of relationship back. Thank you, Jesus, you're alive. We proclaim, Jesus, you're alive. We thank you that you're our suffering servant and our great king. We worship you this Easter. We do this in Jesus' name. Amen.